Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. My name is Joe Devine and today I was delighted to be joined by Jimmy Farrar. Jimmy is the manager of the Chagos FC or the Chagos Islands Football Club. Um, now, I didn't know what that was before last week. A friend of mine told me about it and I saw um, comedian Mark Thomas tweeting about it and I read into the story. So a little bit of context before we get started with Jimmy. Um, the Chagos Islands is in the uh, Indian Ocean. I, I think it was part of the British Empire in colonial times. And uh, it was never given back, right? And in the 60s and 70s, uh, the islanders uh, I mean, there was quite a lot of islands there, but the main one, the islanders from the from the main island, were evicted um, by the British government so that they could build a military facility, which I think is actually an American military facility. Um, and it became illegal for these people to go home or step foot on their island, right? And many of them live in Mauritius now. Um, many of them also live in the UK. Uh, and there's quite a big community in Crawley, which is, um, is not too far from London, actually, um, which is where... Jimmy lives. And uh, Jimmy Farrar met a couple of these guys, I think, uh, in and around uh, non-league football. Um, and uh, he took the job as the manager of this of this new team. So uh, this community living in, in, in Crawley, uh, who I guess are the, yeah, the, the, the Chagos in Diaspora, they started a football team. Um, and uh, they are playing in the Kanifa World Cup this year in uh, in May and June. Um, so I had uh, Jimmy come in. Um, I'm really, really grateful for him to doing for him uh, to for to him for doing so. I thought it's a really interesting story. He's such a lovely guy, and it was really interesting to talk to him. Um, so I talked to Jimmy a little bit more about the situation. Hopefully, we do a good job. I mean, Jimmy does a pretty good job of explaining the situation. Um, we talk about how he can manage a football team with such limited resources and, um, you know, a little bit about the, a little bit about some of his players and obviously they're raising money to go, um, to, to go to travel to Macedonia, which is where the Kanif World Cup is being played. There is a, uh, just giving link, by the way, in the, um, in the notes of this podcast. So if you like this episode and you're interested and you want to support the, uh, the Chagos Islands FC, you can do so. You can donate money to um, enable them to to travel to Macedonia. It, it's very expensive, it turns out. So the more the merrier there. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a fascinating story. Um, and uh, it's kind of heartbreaking as well. And obviously it's, it's a huge injustice. And I think that will come across to you um, when you listen to today's episode. But also it is a story of um, hope as well. And I think for me, the hope um, that football can bring to communities, you know, and uh, it's so in, in some ways it's, it, it, it's bittersweet. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for Jimmy, uh, to Jimmy for coming in. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoy listening to today's episode and uh, I hope it spurs you on to, you know, do your own research as well. Find out more about the uh, Chagos Islands FC. And as I said, you can, you can support them by donating if you have some, some spare cash, which would be great. Um, also, this episode is supported by The Athletic, which is the best place to read about football online. Um, certainly the best place to read incredibly high-quality football journalism, totally ad-free, on an app or a website with fantastic accessibility. That's how I like to think about it. Uh, you can get a seven-day free trial by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. And if you like it, you can get 50% off an annual subscription that works out to £2.50 per month. Um, so uh, please go and check that out as well. Uh, anyway, that is all from me for now, and um, I will hand over to uh, Jimmy Farrar. 
Jimmy Farrar, thanks so much for uh, coming in. Thanks very much, Joe. Thanks for having me. Did I say your name correctly? I feel like I just checked with you beforehand and then I said it wrong immediately. Jimmy Farrar. Ferrer. Ferrer. Ferrer, depending on how common you are, or Ferrer, <laughs> right. if you're rather posh. Have you always had this thing? Is it you don't mind how people pronounce it? No, I think growing up it was always Ferrer. Right. So I grew up in Crawley and then I, I met a lot of well-to-do people through football, through work, and all of a sudden my name became Ferrer. So <laughs> I learned a lot, learned yeah. a lot about people. I'm very <laughs> interested in this when people have names that can be pronounced differently. In fact, I was born in Lancaster, which you wouldn't get from my accent, right? But I was born in a place called Gallgate, which everyone who lives there calls Galgate. And I feel a little <laughs> bit like it's, yeah, I don't have a right to claim I'm from there because I can't even say the name of the place properly. How about that? I'm going to try again now with the Chagos Islands. Chagos Islands, yes. The Chagos Islands. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the Chagos Islands and your uh, interaction with uh, some of the people and the football team. So I was I was a non-league manager last year. I was manager a non-league side in the Southern Combination. Done relatively well. My partner had we had a baby, little girls one, and then I fell out of love with football. In all honesty, fell out of love with like non-league football. Players demanding money. Players that I didn't think were particularly worthy of earning a mortgage payment. Right. Um, so I was going to have a, I was having some time out of football so I was going to have two, three weeks out of football see where it led maybe do a bit of casual coaching because I really enjoy the coaching side of things still and then I think I'd had two weeks off and then Sabrina the chair lady for Chagos team me and I got talking on Twitter and with that I got asked to go down and meet the committee went down and met the committee had a good chat with them obviously some of them aren't overly qualified. Some of them haven't done any qualifications. So right. I said that I could try and help them with that with some contacts at the FA and go down that route and got asked to go and do some casual coaching, which was once a week. I think the first session I had, six players turn up. Wow. So I, I remember turning up and scratching my head and thinking... 3v3, really? Yeah, thinking, cheese what I've got myself in for. <laughs> but word quickly gets around with the Mauritian community. I say Mauritian. All my players were born in Mauritius. Right. But... A lot of a lot gets round very quickly in the community, and it did get round very quickly. Um, and with that, the next session I had twelve, and then I think every week since then we've had twenty to thirty players. Amazing! So that's grown. Yeah, it's grown rapidly. And right. since the World Cup, I'm inundated with players wanting to come to training. That I've got to just say, listen, we're at a point now where the players I'm I'm taking to the World Cup, I know who I want to contact and who right. I want at training. Right, the list is already prepared. Yeah, the list is prepared the players will be finding out <laughs> shortly in a few weeks so we've got a documentary being filmed on the team right. so I've got to work it a little bit around the documentary as well yeah. so yeah give it a couple of weeks and it will all you'll see it on every form of social media then right yeah okay so I mean the Chagos Islands uh, I will admit I had to look this up beforehand a friend of mine told me about the story uh, and I, then it rang a few bells because I follow Mark Thomas the comedian on, on Twitter yes. he's been tweeting about it as well right I'd never heard of this place, uh, and so I Googled it and uh, read mostly on the Wikipedia page. Never heard of this before, but the Chagos Islands is a little archipelago right in the Indian Ocean, which it seems like the British never gave back from uh, the colonial time. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very, it's a heartbreaking story. I think right. if you're if you're a person, if you're a human being, it's a heartbreaking story. But the actual geographic side of it, Chagos is. I think it's 1,200 miles, give or take a little, a few miles, 1,200 miles off of the east coast of Mauritius. Right. 
it's about yeah. I think it's fifteen hundred south of the Maldives. Yeah. So it is in it is literally an atoll in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. There's there was sixty islands. There's now gone down to around fifty four islands. Right. Diego Garcia, which is the biggest of the islands, is an American airbase. Which, if you read up on the story, that's the basis of the story that they were all evicted. Twelve hundred people were evicted. No, sorry, two thousand people were yeah. evicted, and basically dumped in Mauritius. This and, was in the early seventies, right? Yeah, late sixties, yeah. early seventies, but. I won't go too much into the story, but yeah, some of the things that happened to the people, you can see I faced some obstacles, so people wondering why I want to do the job. I've had people from, friends from football that have said, Jimmy, why do you want to do, and it is people that are very short-sighted, they've said, why do you want to do a job full of a load of Mauritians that are no good at football, but right. they've never had proper coaching, they've never had a platform to play at a World Cup with the right support I don't think yeah. so I feel like this year the team we've got built behind the scenes I feel like we're going to go I think we're going to surprise a lot of people this summer right. a lot of people and that's what I'm looking forward to because people write us off and that's what I love I love building in my team I love building a siege mentality very mm. much so I like them thinking it's the world against us because you get an extra 5-10% at people Right. Yeah. so that's what I'm basing this World Cup on so these guys most of them live were living in Crawley right at the time when they first yeah. formed the team yeah, um, so what's your involvement when, when, when did your involvement with them start so my, my involvement started about six months ago I was it was pre-season right. I was taking, taking a step back and then sort of took a step forward with the Shagos team got talking to Sabrina got involved so I knew two or three of the players one of the players played for me last year the team I won the league with I know him really well I got talking to him Said he said Jim come down do some coaching I saw that they've got a very there's a very it's a very raw bunch right. uh, some raw talent some very big talent but it just sort of needs a bit of nurturing a bit of coaching so yeah I've been involved in about six months and right. it's turned into a pretty much a full time job how long have you known all of the players is it just at that time did you know any of the players beforehand I know a few of the players I know a few of the players beforehand I knew probably three players very, very well right a handful knew to say hello to but the rest I've literally they're sort of like a second family to me now I right. had them all around for dinner on Friday night <laughs> or a handful around for dinner on Friday night so yeah you get to know them once you're in that circle, they do become very close friends with you. And the guys you did know beforehand, did you know them through football? Through football, yes. Were they playing at other clubs that you were working at? or Non-league football's a bit... It's like cats, isn't it? Cats yeah. will go to whoever feeds them and footballers <laughs> in non-league will go to whoever pays them. So right, right, right. I know a few of them. I know a few of them that played for me, a few of them that I'd watch regularly, a few of them that I'd try to... Sort of, I won't say tap up, but a few I've tried to get into play for me. So non-league around Sussex, around the south of England is very close knit. Everyone knows everyone. You know the players you're after. So I knew them. I knew them as as well as I needed to know them right. when I took this job. Yeah. Okay. And so for these guys, you said most of them were born in Mauritius, right? So I mean, they're they're too young to be to have been born uh, on the Chagos Islands themselves. What is their cultural connection to to the place? Because we know that. Uh, the people are still hoping to return, right? This 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 case has gone through the uh, the European Court of Justice. I think it's been at the UN General Assembly. Yeah. There's been movement in the last sort of year or so. The British government are being a little bit stubborn about it and don't want to give the island back, even though it it's been demanded that they do so. Um, what is what is your players' connection with uh, their, their cultural heritage? So 
you'll hear on if you watch a lot of videos on YouTube, read a lot of the stories, the people that were evicted from the island, they're just they're referred to as the natives. Right. So they're the people that fundamentally the refugee groups and that try to support the most. Yeah. Which we've got 144 of I think in Crawley. A right. lot the rest live in Mauritius. Um so they're the natives. They're the, they're actually British citizens as well. So yeah. they get a British passport. Their their children will be the second generation. Yeah. They're allowed a British passport and then two or three of mine are second generation. The rest are all third generations. Right. It's where it gets real complicated. All the third generations don't get a passport. Right. So I've got a lot of players that are playing here on there. Some of them are on um, permits to stay here. Right. Some have been granted permission to stay full time. Some have actually got their naturalisation, their British passports now. So it's a very it's a complicated situation. But the majority right. of my players are third generation. So they're not entitled to the British passport because they're third generation rather than first yeah. or second. So the British government, I don't know when it was, they cut it off at the the, the natives and the second generation. So their their children directly were British citizens, got a British passport. <laughs> third generations were considered because, like I say, all my players were born in Mauritius. They were considered Mauritian and no claim to be British or no claims to have a British passport. And it shocks me actually because, like I like I told you previously, like politically, I don't don't have an allegiance to anyone. Yeah. But with them, it's such a heartbreaking story. Yeah. When you get to know the story, you think you've only got to have the smallest bit of compassion in your body, and you think to yourself, it's like it's a serious injustice. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because. So we, at Tifa, we've talked about Kanifa a few times and we're doing a bit of uh, work on it in preparation for the World Cup coming up this summer. Um, and it's an interesting it's an interesting tournament and some of the teams and some of the territories, of which most of it I've never heard of them, right? But doing some reading about them, it seems that there's a real split between uh, those that uh, have, I, I don't want to call them sort of genuine claims to, to uh, territory, uh, because I don't, don't want to infer that, that uh, or imply that n every team doesn't. But there are some teams that, that their sort of connection with each other uh, is nothing like the Chagos Islands. Right? It's not like they've had their home stolen from them uh, and they're living elsewhere and they are citizenless or whatever. It's like this is a group of people, Cascadia, for example, right? Portland, Seattle, this area. Yeah. They're sort of politically separate from America, therefore they're their own nation. And fair play to them, that's fine, you know, but it's not it's not quite the same situation as far as I understand. So with, with your guys then, Kenefa seems the, 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 to be the perfect place for them, right? I mean, if they are in a sense if a lot of them live in Britain but are citizens of Mauritius are not entitled to a passport here but have had their original home taken from them by the British it just it just seems completely insane I'm, I'm it, whining it around, I don't know what my point is but like this is what Kanifa is so good for right this, heard, this is why it's question. so exciting I've heard that hundreds of times in the right. past six months Joe people saying how does it, how does that work like that's right. not I've got I've got sixteen year old, eighteen year old, nineteen year old boys that have got the potential to play at a World Cup on the world stage. Some talented boys, and they can't go because of a passport issue. And I just think to myself, and it's literally a case of I take them on the plane. They're not coming back to the country, and right. they've all got families here. They're settled here. Some are working here, right. but just because their sort of their passport application is still ongoing, <laughs> it's just yeah. It's, it's, and when you read about the the case, uh, as as I did before before you arrived. Um, and I've read quotes of a lot of the opposition to, to the British government um, and their decision to kind of ignore the ruling that they have to give the island back. So, I mean, I think what happened was 
the International Court of Justice last year, 2019, uh, advised the UN General Assembly yeah. that you have to, you know, you have to give this back, this place, this place back to its original owners as as rapidly as possible. I think the quote was. It went back to the UN General Assembly. They upheld that that advice and uh, set a deadline of I think it was November of last year. November, I think November the sixteenth. Right, the top of my head. Yeah. Which the British government just completely ignored yeah. and said nothing <laughs> about. Uh, meanwhile, they have uh, third generation people from that place living in the UK who they won't give a passport to. Yeah. I don't want this to turn into a kind of shitting on the British government situation, but that's. It is, there doesn't really seem crazy, to be any kind of like obvious re- reasoning for that, yeah. short of the fact that the place has become a, 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 a military base, right? Yeah. Presumably, I, it's politically difficult for them. I played it. I I tried to spit it on its head a little bit a few weeks back, actually, and it, it was me. Some people saying Jim, you're just being a bit of a tit, and some people might just say you're just trying trying your luck. And I was, and I. The Shale Islands are called the British Indian Ocean Territory. Yeah. Some people call it the British Overseas Indian Ocean, various names, but it is called the BIOT. And they've actually got, they're self-governing. It's got its own little government. They've turned it into a marine protection zone. And I thought, they're the islands where these players, their heritage is and where their families are from. So I writ to, I sent an email to the FCO and said, can, can we have some funding for the World Cup as you're our yeah. governing body? Is there, and they just... I knew what I was going to get back. I've just got an email. You need to go to the culture of department, sport, and all that. So, but then they at the bottom of it, he said, "If you want to, if you want to organise a trip to the Chagos Islands, then here's a link to it." And right, but so you can't I, go to the main one, right? But you can go to the smaller ones. Is that is that the no, case? No, that's that's the crazy thing, and that is the crazy thing for the Chagosian people. That yeah. there's 54 islands. There's yeah. three main islands: Peros, Banos, Diego Garcia, and Solomon Islands. Nearly forgot one then. I wouldn't, wouldn't have been forgiven. <laughs> but it's two islands there that are inhabited. They've got big coconut plantations right. on, and people could happily live on them. And I, I think I don't know exactly what its stage is at now, but people were happy to live on the island with the American airbase there on Diego Garcia, which is the biggest of the islands. Yeah. But it's just it's a flat refusal. Yeah. Like like you said, it's not a case of shitting on the British government. We've got to be quite sensitive to the fact that. Well, I'm British citizen, we all live here, but you've, you've got to be sensitive to that fact as well. But uh, there's no reason why they can't live on the islands, and right. that's not me saying, oh, I just want a paradise island to go and coach football at, because I don't think my partner will let me. She wants to pretty much stay over here, so it works quite well for her. But yeah, I just I don't understand the, the logical yeah. behind it, but all we do is we just keep playing football, and the football does. I personally think football's the biggest platform. Right the biggest platform for us to keep the Shagos story in the headlines. And yeah. Is there anything else that's keeping it in the headlines, short of it being in the, you know, like The Guardian, for example, or...? Uh, there is papers, but it's all fundamentally based around the football team now. So right. the first port of call will normally be to, in Crawley, our chair lady, Sabrina. She's also the chair lady of the Shagos refugee group. So right. she's normally the first port of call. Everyone, anything to do with Shagos Islands, everyone knows her. She's right. sort of she's quite a sought-after character in the media. So it normally goes to her, and then it's based around the football team. I've had, I've had six different people in the past few months message. We've got the BBC... We've got numerous documentary teams that all want to do documentaries on us, people travelling yeah. from South America, right. so on and so forth. So, Which is great, right? It is good, but I just want i want to personally give the boys the platform to play at the World Cup at an yeah. elite level of football. Yeah. And football is my sole motivation. The political side isn't, but meeting the boys, 
like most human beings, you get to know them personally, mm. get to know their families, get to know get to know them on a personal level. Before you know it, you're sort of you're engrossed in the story, and it does yeah. it take it takes over you. And I don't think you'd meet many people that would get to know the boys personally many football managers or coaches when you get to know them you wouldn't become engrossed in the story and yeah. you wouldn't feel a sense of injustice to yourself yeah that's interesting I, yeah so I've had, I've had hundreds of people say to me but you voted Labour but you voted I was like no it's not a case of that right. it's a case of just being a human being and right. getting to know them personally and knowing the story because yeah. yeah I won't go into the I won't go into that too much people no, can sure, do their own but... research and do their own homework on it can't they so but like I say when you read up on it and when you watch the documentaries you'll think Jesus, that was, was colonisation right. 50 years ago. Yeah. So it's... Yeah. Which has, I mean, doesn't, you know, as I said, I, I don't, I'm not an expert at all. I read about it mostly the other day and then before you arrived today, Jimmy, but I, I, I don't understand the justification. There doesn't seem to be any obvious justification. The opposition to the, the British government in terms of people living in Mauritius and the UN General Assembly Council don't seem to understand what the opposition is. I mean, yeah. I read some quotes from people who would just baffled that the British government were being so stubborn about yeah. it, which which says something, I think. But, I mean, I like what you said, I think, is interesting and is a kind of testament to football in a way to think about a people who have been removed from their home, but who who sort of found a home in football, if you will. I mean, yeah. that, that sort of, you know, that team is a way of uh, keeping their their culture alive, right? I mean, if they can't go home... But they have this this football team in, in Crawley. Yeah. <laughs> That's Craw a pretty nice way. Crawley's the main hub for in the UK. There is we've got reasonably big population in Manchester around London. Yeah. But Crawley's got about two thousand to between two and two and a half thousand mm. Shagossian people. So it is the main hub, so that's why it makes sense to obviously train there. But like I say, we've built it's a very tight knit community. I've had I've got a lot of English people, a lot of British people on the coaching team now. And mm -hmm. since they've got to know me, it's like the sense of community and the sense of how close and together they all are is astronomical compared right. to when you when you involve yourself with a non-league team or with a team that's players that have got no allegiance particularly to something. These players do see it. They're international footballers and they're playing for an international football team. Mm. So it's total different mindset. And I've had to do a lot of learning with it as well and had to grow with it. But... I think like I've learnt learnt quickly, and mm. it's been it has been probably one of the best experiences in football that I've had. So yeah, good. Okay, right. Well, if you don't mind, let's go back to the beginning with you, and we'll come back to the Chagosians later, and we'll talk about how the process for Kanifa and stuff. But how did uh, you get into football originally? Did you did you play football yourself? I play football. Are you still playing now? Yeah, debatable now. I'm not playing now. Um, <laughs> I haven't played for a few years. I, right. I do. I don't even. I don't join in the end of sessions now because right. I run it so professionally. I don't. I don't want to be that. Right. I'm hanging on to my playing career because <laughs> when it when you look at it from non-league to professional, I wasn't. I wasn't the greatest of footballers. I stopped playing quite early on, and I knew I wanted to manage. Knew I wanted to coach with my day job. I manage people, so from pretty early on I've always wanted to manage people mm. I like the I like the feeling of sort of building a family and building building a good team so right. I went and what was your first job early on. it was an under 18s grassroots side in Crawley right. I took them over when they were under 17s right. and it was they were quite similar they were a lot of raw talent right. um, a lot of raw talent quite I remember turning up to that first session thinking Jesus they need a serious amount of work but worked with them Again, raw talent. We won the league 
un, you know, won the league unbeaten in the first season of the league, won probably one of the strongest youth leagues in London, the Tandridge League, won that, won the League Cup, and then finished wow. second in the top league, the Premier League on the under 18 year, and then they all split up, some went to academies, some found girls, some found booze, like they do at under 18. Sure. And then I went over to a county league side in Crawley called Oakwood. They were, I think we were flirting with relegation. I went in with about eight games to go. We stayed up. And then the next season, mid-table, the following season we finished, should have got promotion, but didn't because of ground grading, which a lot of people at grassroots will know. And then what's, I went, what's that, sir? Ground grading, so we didn't have, a, didn't have a 50-seater stand in place, basically, for a grassroots side. Right. So we used to get about 15 men and these dog coming to watch. Right. And we didn't have a stand in place. So, so you can't get promoted so if you, you don't couldn't need get a... promoted, so we'd done the hard work, but failed in the background so right. that yeah. left a sour taste in my mouth so I went I took a step up to Crawley Down that were a, to another grassroots or another non-league side but a step higher and then last year I went back to a team called Allfold in the Southern Combination we won the league and then I don't know I think I've done a lot of soul searching in pre-season right. I, remember, I remember driving home it was a long drive home and I remember thinking to myself what am I because I've got a soul aim I want to go into full-time football I want yeah. to be a I think I'm a very good football manager. I know that might sound arrogant, but no, no, it's I right, want to yeah. be. I want to be in football full time. I like coaching. I like, like being around football. There's there's not many places that I feel like with football. When I'm in on the football pitch, I could be, I could be there eight hours a day and right. do it day in day out, and that is what I want to do. That's my end goal. So I done a lot of soul searching end of last season, and I remember thinking I'm going to take some time out, try and find a little bit of love for football again. Right. And this is what you're doing now? Yeah, had a couple, had two weeks out and then... Going to the World Cup. Yeah. I think my girlfriend thought it was too good to be true. I had two weeks out and next thing you know, I'm going to, I'm going to Macedonia. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was an interesting, pretty, interesting pretty month. Pretty quick turnaround. Pretty yeah. quick turnaround. But yeah, this is... Um, some of the decisions I've made in life, this has probably been one of the best ones because right. the people I've met, the opportunities I've had, yeah. the things I've learned, uh, some, of the, some of the places I've learned about... It's right. been yeah, been very very interesting. Um, it sounds like you've had quite a lot of success as a manager. I mean, you've won. So you said you won the league. You won a few cups with the under 18s as well. To what do you credit your success? How do you? Why are you a good football manager? As you say, with with all my teams, when I manage when I manage solely, I base I base up my philosophy, so to speak, is base it fundamentally around sort of old school way of playing so a lot of heart a lot of passion I like to get my teams as fit as I can possibly get them but then spinning that again I also like to work very new school so I like to man manage people personally I like to know everything about every one of my players and their personal life is there things I can help them with is there things that I can get to know better about them is there things that make them tick so I learned that I learned that with a lot of my players I'm still learning now I've only been in the job six months and I think you get a lot more out of people and people trust you I played for I played for managers previously and you'd literally speak to them for 10 minutes before a game on a Saturday and 5 or 10 minutes on a Tuesday and a Thursday evening and right. they wouldn't ever get to know you personally they wouldn't sort of know what you're going through at home what you're going through in your day to day life and when you get to know people personally and you sort of open that door people do they they all run through a brick wall for you. Right. And so so that's, it's just forming relationships, right? Yeah, forming relationships. I think the biggest thing about football now, I think one of the biggest skill sets for a, a professional manager, especially, but any manager down to grassroots, if you man, man manage people properly, 
and man manage people personally, then you'll get a lot more out of people. Right. And you do that with the with the with the young players by asking questions. Is that how? Is that is that how it works? Yeah, I'd, I wouldn't know how I'd sort of pull it in a nutshell, right. but yeah, I just I've got a lot. I've got I built a good coaching team around me, so right. I've sort of got at training the time to walk around. I get to know players. We do we do a lot of team events. We have fundraising nights where we do we have a party effectively, and I just simply won't drink it. I'd rather engage and get to know the families, get to know the boys, get to know right. the kids, and just from things like that. You when you learn that you, you centre back to two young boys, and I've got a young boy the same age. You sort of you just build something. You've got something to relate to them on, and people do, and then they, right. get, they sort of appreciate that. And people people appreciate the time. I think right, yeah, okay. And with Chagos now. I mean, how limited are your resources? How does how does training work? Where are you training? So yeah, this <laughs> this is one of my biggest this is one of my biggest obstacles. We train once a week on a three G pitch. Right. We don't get the whole pitch. We get a third of the pitch to what, train. What on. is a three G pitch? Is it astroturf? Yeah, like four like G astroturf, right, like yeah. this with all those black rubber crumbs on. So yeah, we train on that at the moment. We got a third of a pitch, and it all comes down to costs. So I took the Shagos job. The bank account had zero zero pounds in. So yeah. First, my first thing was we need to find a training venue somewhere for them to train regularly through wind, rain, snow. Right. So we found that, and now we're looking at getting the funding in that we can train two or three times a week before the World Cup. Right. So we can start making things as professional as possible. How long is your session once a week? Uh, two hours. Two hours. Yeah, an hour and a half. So an hour what, and a half do you, what do you fit into that? I mean, how do you decide what to do if you only see them once a week? It's it's tricky. It is tricky. I speak to got a head coach, got a strength and conditioning coach. We've got a WhatsApp group, and primarily we talk on there or we talk on the phone. I'll tell them what I what I want us to work on. We a lot of people think you'll work on everything possible, but when you go and watch a lot of professional teams, they work on a cycle of things. So they work on their phase of phases of play, and they might work on for half hour how the opposition might play on a Saturday. Mm. But we tend to work on how we're going to play at the World Cup. We tend to work on that predominantly as a counter-attacking, um, pressing. Right. We work on the same sort of things week in, week out. The one thing I have had to improve a lot is been our finishing. So right. create so many chances, but we just don't put them in the net. Right. So I've had to base 15 minutes of my session, every session just around finishing. And last Thursday, I took the session myself and I remember thinking at the end, Jesus, I think we've, I think we've come over the first hurdle. Right, okay. Well, you forgive me, I've never played football as an adult, right? So I don't know how training works. What kind of drills do you use to uh, teach better finishing? Is it just repeatedly shooting a goal, different situations? or? So you, we do a lot of combination plays. So we, do, we try and replicate a match scenario. So we'll primarily set up three to four passes, different different scenarios, different areas of the pitch, and then it finishes with one person putting the ball in the net. Right, so okay, so it's as much as like a real as match much, as possible. As much as that, but then obviously we progress that into phases of play, so passing it out to a wide man, just trying to replicate match scenarios as much as, much as you possibly can, really. Yeah, okay, and with the players, as I said, you only have them once a week, you have you have a strength and fitness coach as well. Yes. How do you uh, how do you keep an eye on what they're eating and what they're doing for the rest of the week? Like, do, do they, are they pretty active? Are they are they going to the gym? Are they, yeah. they putting their weight outside of training? You, I've, we've had, I've had 
I've had a few rants at them recently. Right. I've also had a few good conversations, like structured conversations, and I've told them for the past month or two they can't rely on one session a week. No, no footballer to play a, a World Cup can rely on one session a week. They all play for club teams, so they do all train on a Tuesday with their with their club teams. Right. So obviously I get them on a Thursday, but then I've a lot of them you can see that they sort of lose habits that you're trying to. In, ingraining them and they just revert to going just playing long ball football again in the match right. particularly so if you don't know what their other coaches yeah doing, exactly right? so I'm quite lucky in that a lot of the coaches are quite they're quite forgiving they're quite happy that they're players that are playing at a decent level obviously I've explained to them what we're doing with them what we want to get out of them and I think a lot of them appreciate that they're getting the physio the physio is the main one they're right. looked after by a physio by a proper strength and conditioning coach right. so what do they do those guys, what do they do? To so, the the physio, yeah, the strength yeah, and condition- yeah. so the strength and conditioning coach, he's, I got him on board about a month ago and he's done two sessions and his first session was, it was a lot of core work, so strengthening their body, strengthening their backs, their abs and stuff like that. Last week it was, he gave me a plan. We just done some, we done some flat out hill sprints. So wow, okay. it was, it was hard work, but like yeah. I say, like I said to you earlier, I want to take them to the World Cup as the fittest team. So yeah. I surround myself with people with a lot of expertise in what they do. I'm a football manager. I'm not. A str- I know a lot of football managers think they know strength and conditioning, they know physio- physiology and all that. I don't. I don't right. know all of that. So I try and surround myself yeah. with the people that have that expertise in every area. And I, I will just pick their brains every Tuesday, right. every Thursday, every Saturday when I need to. And I learn. I learn every t- all the time. I learn every Saturday, every match day every training session off of them and then I'll pick bits up so when I'm when I feel like I'm going to go and do a session tonight I'll do it and I know I know how to do it properly and how to mm. do it safely and how to do it well that's interesting actually the last guest I had in here was uh, Alex K. Jelski who's uh, the editor of uh, The Athletic UK yes I was talking to him about his job and uh, you know, I said to him, "It must be exhausting. You must have to know everything because he's fielding phone calls every morning from writers covering every single different Premier League club, right?" And he said that you don't have to know everything. You just have to know what to ask, yeah. and you just have to know. You know, you have to know what's interesting. And it strikes me that's, that's quite similar as a football manager. If you if you build a good team around you, yeah. you don't need to know how the strength and conditioning works as well as the strength and conditioning coach does. You have to be able to ask them the right questions and make sure that they're working into what you want to do as best as possible, right? So it's a bit more like an oversight role in a way. Is that is that a good description of, of it, do you think? I think it goes back to what we said earlier about managing. Like, So you manage players, but you also manage your own team. So mm-hmm. if we had a dreadful World Cup... If I was managing England, we had a dreadful World Cup. The buck stops for me. It's yeah. not. It's not the physio or the strength and conditioning coach that gets the sack. It's the manager. Yeah. So you have to you have to manage them well, and you have to. When I say I'm not an expert in it, you know primarily what they're doing is right or what they're doing is wrong. Mm. Um, so you have to manage them, make sure they're doing the right the right elements all the time. Just manage them on a day on a weekly basis, on a daily basis. I wish I could manage them on a daily Imagine, basis, but yeah, manage them on a weekly basis and make sure what they're doing is what you're trying to build into. And with that, I've the guys I've got in, I trust. So I've had probably twenty or thirty coaches that are well qualified, like your way for qualified coaches, but I don't know them from Adam. So right. you you wouldn't you wouldn't get them in. Because you'll be gamb- you'll, I'll be taking a gamble on them. So mm. the people that I brought in, I know, I know well, I know personally, 
and there might be better coaches out there, there might be better goalkeeper coaches, but they build into my philosophy well, and I know they will they will manage their their set of the session well, and they'll manage people well. Okay, so it's the World Cup in the summer. Is the can you tell people listening what Kanifa is? Because uh, I feel like I mean m- many of the listeners will know, but some of them some of them won't. And I'm going to ask you about the process because I, I have no idea how this works. I hope you so, do. So FIFA's, when you say FIFA, it's just a football association for um, football, international football. So yeah. we're exactly the same, but it's it's fundamentally, it's fundamentally countries and regions that aren't recognised. So right. this is, so we've got us, you've got North Cyprus, mm-hmm. um, Western Sahara, Places that aren't recognised by Tibet is an example. I don't think they're Tibet. in the tournament this year, but they've been in it before, right? Yes, and, yeah, Tibet. And were Palestine in the previous incarnation of it before they were FIFA? I'm not, I'm not sure on the one before before Khalifa. I'm not sure if was, Palestine were because yeah, right. they're part of FIFA now, aren't they? Are they? Now, I think so, it was 2003 or something. But yeah, I think Tibet were the last time round, which is yes, a, a probably a, probably the London World a Cup popular example, that. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the the uh, Chagos team have. Um, do you have to qualify for this? Yeah, so... What's the qualification yeah, process? Was, on the, uh, when I took the job, I, the first question I asked was, how do we qualify for <laughs> what this are we World doing? Cup? Yeah, yeah. And they all looked at me and they was like, oh, there's not really a process. And I yeah. was like, qualifying for a World Cup? I was yeah. like, it's going to cost tens of thousands of pounds to get there. I hope you've got some sort of plan put together. And they told me that effectively you get up to 10 qualifying games and you can pick the, you can pick the qualifying games. Right. And I thought, that's bonkers. <clears throat> Because I thought I'll go and pick I'll go and pick the local pub side and beat right. them ten times. Right. But then there was little there was little there was little rules within it. You can only play a team twice. Right. Um, okay. If you play the Kanifa side, you got more points. So it was actually three points for a win, two points for a draw, one point for a loss. Right. And if you played a Kanifa time a Kanifa team, they would times that by four. So if you played a Kanifa team and beat them, you'd get twelve points. Wow. Okay. And then there was a a, t- a Nat, Nat Manara team. I've never heard of before which is basically right. a team that is an association team but they're associated to Kanifa which there is a few of right. if you played them if you played them then I think it was times two right. so if you win lose or draw and if you just okay. play the normal league side so if we played the England national team we were, if we beat them we'd only get three points right. but if we played a team like Raisha in <laughs> Kanifa we could get 12 points right, okay. so yeah, I think the, that looks, it needs looking at, massively needs looking at. Right, but it's a bit confused. Yeah, very yeah. confusing situation and scenario. And when I when I looked at it, when I, I'd done weeks of learning about it, I was banging my head against the wall a lot of the time thinking, right. what, on, what on earth is this? I've never never seen a process like it. Right, yeah. But we played, we got the 10 games in. I think we were playing, the cutoff was the 31st of December. Right. And we played, I remember I had Christmas Day off, Boxing Day off. And then we played on the 28th and we played Punjab. Right. It turned out to be in our group. I remember thinking to myself, everyone else is at home unwrapping Christmas presents and I'm trying to get my 10th qualifying game in. So, yeah. You were doing but, something very, very important though, right? That's... Yeah, very. Yeah. And that turned out to be that turned out to be important. The last two games, I think, got right. us to the World Cup. So what were, the, what were your results across the 10 games like? Uh, we lost four. No, lost five. Drew one and won four. Right, okay. So it was, it was a mixed bag. But you're in, but we're in predominantly, and we did play. Okay. We tried to play more Kanifa or Kanifa associated teams right. that I knew would get us there, as opposed to just playing your association teams from England that mm-hmm. you'll get less points for. Right. So there was a little bit you'd sort of have to manipulate the system a little bit. Yeah. 
But I was also lucky and my players are all based in Crawley. So I could call on them at a week or two's notice. Right, they right, want right. to play as much as they can. So you're organising the games yourselves with presumably the representatives from the, from the other, other available teams, right? Yeah, so, so you can, if you if you want to do it next week and it works for everyone, you can. Yeah, okay, right. yeah you can okay. do. A lot of organisation, though, obviously. Yeah. With a lot of the Canifa <laughs> teams, you get you get sort of a big media following as well. Right. And you get a lot. We get a lot of ground hoppers because Canifa games tend to be played on a Sunday. Right. So we're going to play on a Sunday. And I think the Punjab game, we I was organising that up to Christmas Eve. Right. Like, I was on my phone Christmas Eve, like wow. trying to find the ground. Yeah. Getting everything organised for the game, but we got it done. We did lose. We lost quite heavily. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, le- I learned a lot from that. So, so you got your four points, right? They're but, yeah, got four points for losing. So hey, well, that's, that's what other organisation awesome. can you go and lose a game of football and get right. four points from? Hey. <laughs> I forgot to ask you this. You guys don't have, I mean, you don't have a ground, right? So when you play games... You have to find a ground. You can drink your water. I've interrupted you. That's the second time I've stopped you from doing that. But you have to find uh, a ground to play in, right? Yeah, we do. So How does that work? You call call other clubs or you call the groundsman or the owner or what? We've got we've got a few connections with local football clubs. Like I say, a lot of the boys play for clubs. So right. I'll try to try to prey on that a bit, really. That there's one team local to us that have got three of our players playing for them. Right. So, so you swing a freebie, right? You're not yeah, paying for so, it, yeah? No, believe it or not, they make you pay for it. But I say to them, I was like, we use the ground, and they're all manager. Manager I know really well, actually, he's a good friend of mine. But I don't think he'd ever say to me, "No, we're not having that." Otherwise, I'd just be like, "Oh, that's all right. We've got a game Saturday." <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. You're in the World Cup. Who's in your group? Say, so Punjab in the group. Uh, Punjab, Jersey, and Kurdistan. Jersey, Jersey. Okay, as in the island off of the UK. Yes. Right. Okay, and and Kurdistan as well. Kurdistan. Uh, have how do you scout these teams? Can you? So I've got a about three months ago. I've got a head of performance analysis in, right? And he's very good in that. I tell him what I need to know about a football team. And yeah. He will go and he will search. I don't know what archives he searches, but he will find a lot of details out about a team. Right. And he comes out of a dossier, and me and him will speak quite regularly. And he give me a dossier on the team, so it might be a list of players. It might be who's played for them in all their previous games, yeah. formation they're likely to set up with, how they play. I get that from him. And Jersey, a lot of the players play for Jersey's balls. So I think they're one of the only non-league teams that are still unbeaten. Right. And they played 25 games and won 25. So, right. okay. And they play predominantly round Surrey, Sussex and Kent and London. So a few of their games I'm going to pick up in the next few weeks, actually. Right. Okay, so you can scout them, I guess, whilst they're playing for another team. So Jersey, I can. Punjab, we played twice in the past year or two right. so a lot of their players I've already learned a lot about from right. that last game even though we did lose heavily we were 5-0 down at half time I think I have to take it on the chin that I set us up the total wrong way set right. us up the wrong way that we hadn't worked on something and then second half we a lot of people watching quite a few people come to watch that and they said blimey that Shagos team plays like that at the World Cup you'll, you'll win a lot more games than you lose and we did right. but I think Punjab had one shot at the end of the game and they scored it in the 89th minute so <laughs> I'm confident I'm, I've got a lot of players on board since then I've yeah. got, we've sort of our strength and depth has gone up probably got, gone up tenfold right. compared to the first session I turned up got a lot of players playing a lot higher level I have got my the only player I'm flying over from Mauritius is my goalkeeper right which he plays in the Mauritian Premier League, which 
I'm told when you compare it to a standard over here is equivalent to like League Two football. So right. the fact that I'll take him to the World Cup will be a massive bonus for me, be right. a massive bonus for the team. And I think. Have you met him before? I haven't actually met him face to face. We've had a few phone calls over, yeah. we've had a few conversations over Facebook, WhatsApp. Yeah. Um, he's in obviously in our players' messaging group. So right, he yeah. talk, we, all, we all talk, all catch up daily. So How does the goalkeeper from here feel about that? Uh, we've got three keepers. You've got three keepers. So, yeah. So because so, I remember, I don't know. You must have seen the film uh, based, you know, based on Thirty One Nil. The uh, it's about the um, American Samoa. You know, where uh, uh, football, I've heard. I've not watched this. I've heard about this. You got to watch but, it, man. Uh, yeah. it's, it's good. It's, it's it's not that similar to the story, but it's it's um, it's not not too dissimilar. And they have uh, a couple of keepers. One of whom lives in America and plays in MLS. Right. And uh, he, he was he was he was like late 30s early 40s by the time of the tournament that they eventually won their first game but they kept bringing him back and I remember watching the film and thinking what is this poor keeper who lives here and has been like playing every game how does he feel about missing out on the qualifying this is a genuine question though like do you, did you have to, how do you manage that situation if so, you, like, obviously I can understand and I'm sure the players understand why you've made the decision if this guy is of that quality but is it difficult to tell them that you see them every week that they're not going to play? Yeah, you know, this podcast will be, be a bit of an exclusive, actually, because I think a lot of the players will learn that he's coming over because right. we obviously haven't, we haven't released a World Cup squad. But okay. one of my keepers is one of the, he's one of the ones that's got uh, passport issues, so he can't right. travel to the World Cup. Right. So we've got two keepers that, we've got three keepers that train week in, week out, but two that are fighting for a place at the World Cup. So right. that is still very much up for grabs. Um, Christopher coming over, I think Chris coming over, being a professional keeper, yeah. I don't think you'd have to have too much conversations with the other players. Like, no, sure. Just what they're going to pick up off him and the confidence he'll breed being on the training pitch, yeah. I think, will be massive for us. And being in goal behind them, right? Yeah, I guess being, that's, yeah, being that's in goal. So, yeah. so the tournament's in Macedonia. You have to raise money to go, right? We do. So this is one of our biggest obstacles is money. It's, I know a lot of football teams will say it, but... We're playing against a lot of FAs that are funded by governments and funded right. by like national organisations. We're not. We, is, is there sponsorship at the tournament? There is sponsorship. So, right. Sportsbet sponsor the. They actually sponsor the World Cup. Who mm. they pay for your accommodation and stuff whilst you're over there. But we're actually we're in a in a in amidst talking of a marketing agency at the moment that are looking for sponsors for us because our story so so sort of in the limelight at the moment yeah. that there's a lot of organisations that approach us and want to be sponsors but I just need the right person to go out there and get the money for it and right. sort of help us raise the money to get to the World Cup right yeah yeah okay so what is the likelihood that you don't raise the money uh, pretty confident yeah. so yeah like you said earlier Mark Thomas the comedian yeah. he's one of our biggest supporters he loves he comes down to training does he, does he really he's, yeah he, I think he's actually doing a show on us next year but right, yeah. I'm sure that more of that will come out in the in the, on, on the social media but yeah Mark comes down to training sessions watches sessions he's, he's got to know quite a few of the boys and he's coming to the World Cup with us right amazing so, okay. but so it's just, happening yeah just from his shows he, he does shows all over the UK and he sells little Shagos FA badges literally the size of a penny right and I think he's raised us like nearly six grand amazing so amazing he's a great guy I he love is, that he's guy. a top 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 guy right. I've got to know Mark really well and there's not many people that I've got a lot of time for like him but mm. yeah he's very good okay so you're paying for travel you're paying for accommodation you're paying for 
travel travel's the right. killer travel's so the killer accommodation, so flying, right? accommodation out there is paid for by Kanifa okay so okay. they're building it this one around an Olympic village right type of thing so you've got the 16 teams are going to be put into one hotel all going to be staying together um, and you've got you'll have to take a squad of 25 so right. it's up to me how many players and how many staff I take so we're going to go over that we're probably going to be more like 30 so we've we've just got to find the cost of the flights over there right. which are coming out they're coming out about 10 grand at the moment so okay yeah we get get that organized mm, little break in today's proceedings for me to tell you that we are supported by the athletic that's right visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash tifo for a seven day free trial and 50 percent off an annual subscription and you know what you could be reading right now? Oh, well, not right now. Wait till the episode's finished. But as soon as it's finished, uh, you should check out Raphael Honigstein's piece called The Making of Julian Nagelsmann. We do love Julian Nagelsmann here on the TIFO Football Podcast. We've talked about him a lot in the past. We've made a few videos about him. Uh, we've, we've, we've done a lot about Julian Nagelsmann. He's a fantastic young coach, uh, and it seemed only fitting, given that I'm here with Jimmy Ferrer, uh, who is also a very good football manager, to uh, talk about another football manager. But uh, Rafa Honigstein's writing is always amazing. Um, it's quite a long piece, actually, but I just had a flick through it, and um, it's... it's Nagelsmann's story is particularly interesting. Let's put it that way. So uh, you can check that out, and the link will be in the description. You can read that uh, as part of your seven-day free trial. And if you like it, you can get 50% off um, an annual subscription, which works out to be about £2.50 per month. So affordable, ad-free, high-quality Oh, all of the best things. Um, that's theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. Do it now. Back to Jimmy. Okay, so you're in the hotel with all the other teams. What are you telling your players? Are they allowed to uh, make friends? Nope. No, they're no, going to... Be, yeah, it'll be, it'll be very much so when I get out there, when, I, when the football gets started, yeah. how serious we'll be taking this, how serious we've taken in the past month or two. It will be... I'm not going to... It's not going to be like a sort of dictatorship where they're not allowed to talk to other <laughs> other human beings, but I want us to keep ourselves to ourselves. I want right. us to do as much work as we can on the training pitch. Yeah, I've just learned our schedule, which is a bit of a killer. Is and it three games in three days? Oh my god! So what the three group games in three, three days? Group games in three days. So yeah, it's gonna. It's, <laughs> How do you do that? Exactly. I learned that, and I was like, we land on the Friday, and we've got a game on the Saturday, Sunday, and the Monday. What's the size of your squad? Uh, I will be taking 18 players right. and then around about 10 staff, 10 okay. like backroom staff. So you you land on the Friday? We're flying on the Friday, land on the Friday. It's only a three-hour flight, I think, to okay. Macedonia. Still, it's a travel day though, right? Yeah, it's a and travel day. So Next game, next day, next day, three yeah. games in a row. So we, we've got a logistics meeting with all my backroom staff in a couple of weeks. So even that travel day, we're... I'm going to make the physio do something with them at the airport, right, make sure yeah. they travel three hours. The first thing he'd be doing is when we got off the flight, we'd be chucking our bags and he'd be taking them away for right. just sort of like a little activation session, really, just to make sure everyone's as mobile as possible. Yeah. Run to the hotel. Yeah, run. I don't think they'd be doing <laughs> I don't think he's that brave. <laughs> no, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, we'll be doing that. And then Saturday it starts and it's going to be, it is going to be very, very intense, and yeah. that's what we're building a lot of our planning around now. So, okay. the last two weeks of May, we're going to actually be stepping down the training. Had a lot of advice off people that are experts, and they've said you need to sort of tone it down a little bit for right. the last two weeks, which we will be doing. And runners then, do that, don't they? Long distance runners, they go crazy for a year, and then yeah. for a month before they run, 
they do very little right? yeah. yeah it's interesting yeah so the people I've I've learned a lot off people and one of the guys I was speaking to sort of he knows the biomechanics of a body like inside out this guy's right. done like 30 years worth of studying and he tells me that when you're at peak fitness it takes you two weeks to start losing your fitness right. so if you're at peak fitness and you sat on your ass for two weeks you're good you're, yeah you're good that's but interesting on, yeah, around that two week mark, you start losing your fitness. So yeah. he's told me that he might he might be bullshitting me, and you never know. But <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're basing it on that sort of format. Yeah. That two weeks before the World Cup, yeah, we'll start toning it down. We won't we won't be going down to doing nothing. We'll be doing like small activation stuff, keeping walking through sessions, just doing walk through set plays and phases of play. Right. So we'll be doing doing that for the last two weeks. And what and what are your I mean, obviously, you go. You know, you're going to to play well, but but what are your expectations? Do you have any? I think people think I'm crazy when I tell them my expectations. We've, Dave, we played at one World Cup in Abkhazia in mm -hmm. 2016, and then one of the teams dropped out of the World Cup in London in 2018. Yeah, and we got asked to go up and represent in London and play two games. And in them them games alone, in them eight games, yeah, we've not won a game. Right. I think we've scored minimal goals, so people aren't expecting a lot from us, and that's what I, I thrive on. That right. I like being the underdog. I like I like people thinking we're not going to do well because anywhere I can gain one or two percent on a football pitch, I'll make right. sure I cover that ground before we go to the World Cup. So where, like, if this is a difficult question, but it, uh, I guess because we don't know all of the teams, right? I mean, we know who the teams are, but maybe maybe we don't know everything about them. Where would the sort of public perception of your team be in terms of the placement and likelihood to win? So, you know, are, um, you, are you near the bottom? Are I'd you in the middle? I'd say 16th, yeah. 16th. Gen generally 15th, 16th. Right. And so the smallest team? Yeah, we are the smallest team. Smallest right. team by population, by yeah. funding, everything to go with a football team. That's so, exciting though, isn't it? Yeah, and that's what, I, I love that. I, yeah. People think, why would you take that job? But... I like the fact that I can build a sort of build a family environment, yeah. build a team environment around that. Right. And I think we, I'll be pretty confident that we're finishing the top half of that sixteen teams. That would be good. Well, listen, I best of luck to you. I hope if you do go out after the group stage, do are you going to stay for the rest of the tournament? Is it your holiday booked in? I mean, not that that's going to happen, but if it does happen, you don't have to fly home the next day, do? This is a this is where Kanifa is quite unique as well. So. Everyone in that World Cup will be playing six games. Right. Oh, regardless of what happens. Regardless. So right. you play your three group games, finish third or fourth in your group. Right. You then go on to play three placement matches. Right. So that will be basically the finish from so 8th to 16th. To six, right. Yes, yes, yes. And then okay. the top two qualify and then you go to the quarters. So if you lose your quarters, then you go into two placement matches from right. then. Okay. And sort of so on and so forth. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've actually set a target. I told the boys I want us to get, I want us to get two wins and get out of the group. Right. Two of the teams, I think by the time we go, we'll know inside out. One yeah. of the teams, Kurdistan, I think they're going to be, they're, going, they're an unknown entity. Right. We don't know. I've heard all sorts of stories. I've heard that half of their players play for the Iraq national team. Right. Just done really well at the Asia Games. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. I'm, okay. I don't know what to expect with <laughs> them. It's an unknown quantity. Yeah, I can't really go scouting either, can I? <laughs> no, right. That's a, that's a long old, that's a long old job. Okay. But you're you're excited, right? I'm very excited. Yeah, I'm like I say, I'm building a bit of a siege mentality within the camp, and when we get to the World Cup, I'll make sure my boys especially know that mm -hmm. no one's expecting us to win, and I'll get an extra ten, fifteen percent out right. of them yeah. when we get to the World Cup. When is the World Cup? 
it is we fly on the 29th of may right till the 7th of june so okay. it's not a two or three week affair it's literally eight days and right you're there and you're back so and it'll be an intense eight days but yeah that's a big week. Do you guys have a, a a GoFundMe page or something where people can contribute to? We the... have a Just Giving page, right, which yeah. is on our Twitter page right. at Chagos Islands. Okay, that's C H A G O S. Yeah, C H A G O S Island, and then there's the pin tweet, so you can actually go there and yeah. donate should you feel feel the need to. We'll pop a link to that in the description of the episode as well, so people no, can go and perfect. do that if they want to. Um, thanks so much for coming in, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me on. I like hopefully a lot of people learn about the Shagos calls and yeah. hopefully we have a lot yeah. more support going to the World Cup. Do you, can you come back after the World Cup and we can talk to you about how it went? Maybe I'll talk to you during the World Cup. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> uh, but seriously, best of luck. I hope it goes really well. Thanks very and, much, uh, Appreciate I'll be, it. I'll be rooting for the for the Shagos Islands. Thanks very much. All right. We will uh, we'll be back next week with something else. Thank you. Thank you.